So how are politics going in your country? I mean, terrifically well? No, no, don't tell me. You're just delighted with how your version of democracy is currently showing up. I mean, it is a heavy time. So your vision of the future is, is what? On the bleak side, perhaps? I am truly feeling the pain and the confusion and, gosh, I guess the inadequacy of just not knowing what to do about it right now. But what if, what if, what if in the future, the good guys win? And if you knew that, and if you knew that you were one of the good guys, and I think you are, well, what would that call forth from you? Welcome to Two Pages with MBS, the podcast where brilliant people read the best two pages from a favorite book, a book that has moved them, a book that has shaped them. Today, I'm talking to Rob Hopkins, and I set the interview up this way because on his website, there is a photo of him holding a sign that says, I've been to the future, the good guys won. You can see that at robhopkins.net. It is a great photo. He's a father, he's a husband, he's a speaker, he's an author, he's an artist, he's a gardener, and perhaps central to all of that, he is an activist. Rob co-founded the Transition Network and also Transition Town Totnes, the town in which he lives. Which was intended to be uh, something we would start in our community that was like a, a community-led response to climate change. What, what, what can we do here without waiting for anyone's permission, without waiting for anyone's funding? What can we do with the people we have, the resources that we have, the passions that we have? And we started something that we called Transition Town Totnes. And and it took off like wildfire and you can now find transition groups in 50 countries around the world, thousands of communities, and they are reimagining their food systems, their local economies, their energy systems. Now, I can't imagine how Rob has time for any of this. And actually, it turns out he doesn't, or at least not really. Like many in the role of activists, Rob feels a deep frustration not just with the way things are, but why they are like they are. If the people in charge of everything, who are the worst people to be in charge at this period of time, if they could only stop making the stupidest decisions on the list of, of options, which ranges from the right thing to do to the really stupid thing to do, and they keep going for the stupidest things to do on the list, if they went at the other end of the list, me and all the other people I know who are doing this kind of stuff, we could do something else. I could, go, I could go to printmaking school, which I've always really wanted to do. I would have time to do all sorts of nice things. And actually, I spent all my life working on this. You can probably hear this. I can certainly hear the frustration in that answer. But I also hear a deep sense of responsibility and integrity. This is the work that needs to be done. But change happens not just through small things. They're important as well but also through structural shifts. And Rob is thinking about that in terms of imagination. We need to build what I like to think of as being an imagination infrastructure. You know, it's like I think of myself increasingly as an imagination activist who is trying to get people to really think beyond what's in front of them because the climate emergency is now so severe and so urgent that it's only a complete reimagining everything of everything that's going to that's mean we survive. And actually... Reimagining everything sounds amazing. 
Now, there's been a long history where activism and music converges. I mean, musicians throughout the years have produced social commentary and political protest and raising general awareness of what affects our world and doing it in a way that people love. I mean, I'm a big fan of Billy Bragg, have been ever since I was introduced to his music by a girlfriend. I think I even quote him in my most recent book. Now, music was a touch paper of activism for Rob. I think I would probably take that back to when I was about 14 and uh, a punk band called Crass, <laughs> who were an incredible kind of anarchist punk ensemble based in the UK, who were a band, and but they were also almost like a sort of political, philosophical education. Like I was I was a generation for whom school was so atrociously bad yeah. that we were the generation that had to kind of educate itself through fanzines and books and music. And every record that Crass put out came with a fold-out sleeve with essays. And I learned so much. Like there was a record they released that meant that I became vegetarian when I was 14. I've been vegetarian ever since. Yeah. They were very outspoken on issues around uh, it, but it was my first kind of immersion in feminism and yeah. in uh, different political approaches. So uh, I'd say it was punk in general, but yeah. crass. And then also when I was 21, a guy called Bill Mollison, who was the Australian guy who who was one of the co-creators of the permaculture approach i saw him give a talk in a, in a hall in a in a in a place called stroud in the southwest mm -hmm. of england and and it completely blew me away like he had this amazing <laughs> ability that half of the hall wanted to kill him and the other half of the hall's life was totally transformed and i was one of those people and he yeah. gave me a kick up the backside that has been propelling me forward ever since i think that's brilliant how do you sustain the energy it takes to be an activist? How do you renew yourself? Um, I, I think partly because because what I do involves... So, so I wrote a book called The Transition Handbook that, that was one of the books that kind of inspired this movement to get started. And then lots and lots of people read that book and then went off and did things. So to be in a position where I get to go and visit places all across Europe. I don't fly, so that's the extent of where I go. Um, who were inspired by that book and by those ideas and then have created things and then are really excited to show me those things because they mm -hmm. associate with me with why they started them. And then to gather those stories and share them around is partly where I get energy from. It's like, you know, there is so much happening you just never hear about it. You'll never hear about it yeah. in the papers. You'll never see it on the news. But there is so much happening that people are doing. So I get a huge amount of inspiration from from visiting those places, hearing those stories. I get a lot of it. I get a lot of energy from people when I go to places and do talks and workshops and and just mm -hmm. meeting people. Um, I also uh, make time and space for family and downtime and drawing and art making and reading and so you know i've i when you are an activist and, and you're around the world of people doing things in that way you after a while 
you see that we lose an awful lot of people out of these movements from burnout. It's rife. And we've lost so many brilliant people because we just don't look after them enough. Mm. And and they don't look after themselves enough. We don't have a culture that encourages people to look after themselves, you know, that says, you sent me an email at three o'clock in the morning the other day. Are you okay? (laughs) Yeah. Is that all right? Is that is that is that an uh, an expression of of someone whose life is in some kind of balance, you know? So yeah. so for me, I, I try to make space for other things. Got it. And uh, well, if I may, yeah. let me ask you. Um, you know, knowing that you are managing the burnout, but there's still a there's still a price you pay for being an activist. I'm I'm wondering what the cost is of committing to activism. So a guy called Aldo Leopold, who was really one of the first people we would now think of as an environmentalist, he wrote an incredible book called Sand County Almanac in the 1920s, all about wilderness uh, and how important it is, which is an amazing book I'd really recommend to anybody. He said something like, uh, to be an ecologist is is to to have an understanding of, of ecology and what's happening in the world, is to live in a world of wounds, I think yeah. is how he put it. And uh it's not something you you can turn on and off you know for me it's not like you 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 can once you've had what i think of as being your kind of climate change dark night of the soul when it's when it's really landed where we're at and what that means and what the implications are you can't you know, sometimes I go to the pub and there's some people next to me who are saying, oh, yeah, we just got back from four days in Thailand for someone's wedding. I'm like, what the actual fuck are you doing? You know, it's like it's like as if – and you can't turn that on and off. You know, you can't – it's like if if somebody said, oh, I just drove over here in my car with my two kids in their baby seats in the back and I smoked a cigar the whole way here. You'd think you – know, people now would say, uh, sorry? Or, you know, well, I, I, I had to, the kids wouldn't go to bed. So I had to, I, so I slapped them. Now we'd be like, right. oh my God, you know, but <laughs> right. that's, but it's, it's the same for me. You, you, you can't turn this stuff on and off mm. and it's always there. It feels like that's a nice segue to perhaps ask you about the book you're going to read from us. What book have you chosen? So I've chosen a book by somebody and I, I don't even know completely how to pronounce her name properly. So it's either Mari, Mariam or Mariame. Mm-hmm. Do you know, have you, do you know, have you seen that name before? I, I, I haven't. I've, I mean, I looked up the book when I knew that you were going to read from it and I was like, I'm not sure how to pronounce that name either. So, so. I, I, I looked up on, she was, I saw an interview with her in Democracy Now! where, where the interviewer called her Mariam. But I yeah. always call her Mariami, so I'm going to call her Mariami. And okay, perfect. So it's Mariami Kaba, and she's an American activist. Uh, it says on the back, she's an organizer, educator, and curator who is active in movements for racial, gender, and transformative justice, founder and director of Project NIA, an abolitionist organization with a vision to end youth incarceration. I first came across her when I was starting to research the book about imagination. I read an interview with her that she did with... Uh, with a with with a project that was gathering different stories of of yeah. from different activists, and she said in that interview, "We must imagine while we build, always both." Mm. And I mm. I was like, "Who is this woman? She's awesome, <laughs> awesome, awesome!" Right. So she's a prison abolition activist, which for me mm-hmm. is one of the most incredible movements in the world because it's in terms of a what if question, 
what if what if we abolished prisons and the power of a what if question to take us into really rethinking everything for me the, the how the black community have kept that question alive over a long yeah. period of time while the prison abolition complex is being built around them and the doors that it opens to thinking about education and society and compassion and it's just right. amazing she when i started doing my podcast she was the number one person. I've I've basically spent three years trying to get Mariamme Kappa to come on my <laughs> podcast. So part of the reason for me doing this is so that, is that hopefully she'll listen to this and go, yeah, all right, I'll come on Rob's right. podcast. And I've been trying really hard. I think she I think she is is the most uh, articulate uh, person for speaking to how a deep reimagining of things. Mm. is not something to be terrified of and to shy away from but is something right. to embrace and something that can unlock all sorts of hidden jewels that we don't even know are there until we take those steps and it's a brilliant okay. book it's called we do this till we free us it was yeah. published a couple of years ago and it's published by haymarket books and it's basically like it's like a collection of essays and interviews with her and things that she's done in different places and uh and it's just brilliant that's fantastic it's a wonderful setup how did you pick the two pages uh so, so like all books that i that i really enjoy there's a lot of underlining going on in this book. This <laughs> yeah. is one of the most underlined books uh, I think I read recently. And this is basically the two pages with the most underlining on it. I love it. That's a perfect <laughs> a perfect metric. Okay. Um, Rob, I'm, I'm excited to hear you read this. So over to you. None of us has all of the answers or we would have ended oppression already. But if we keep building the world we want, trying new things and learning from our mistakes, new possibilities emerge. Here's how to begin. First, when we set about trying to transform society, we must remember that we ourselves will also need to transform. Our imagination of what a different world can be is limited. We're deeply entangled in the very systems we are organizing to change white supremacy, misogyny, ableism, classism, homophobia, and transphobia exist everywhere. We have all so thoroughly internalized these logics of oppression that if oppression were to end tomorrow, we would be likely to reproduce previous structures. Being intentionally in relation to one another, a part of a collective, helps not only to imagine new worlds, but also to imagine ourselves differently. Join some of the many organizations, faith groups, and ad hoc collectives that are working to learn and unlearn, for example, what it feels like to actually be safe, or those that are naming and challenging white supremacy and racial capitalism. Second, we must imagine and experiment with new collective structures that enable us to take more principled action, such as embracing collective responsibility to resolve conflicts. We can learn lessons from revolutionary movements like Brazil's landless workers movement that have noted that when we create social structures that are less hierarchical and more transparent, we reduce violence and harms. Third, we must simultaneously engage in strategies that reduce contact between people and the criminal legal system. 
abolitionists regularly engage in organizing campaigns and mutual aid efforts that move us closer to our goals. We must remember that the goal is not to create a gentler prison and policing system because, as I have noted, a gentler prison and policing system cannot adequately address harm. Instead, we want to divest from these systems as we create the world in which we want to live. Fourth, as scholar and activist Ruth Wilson Gilmore notes, building a different world requires that we not only change how we address harm, but also that we change everything. The prison industrial complex is linked in its logics and operation with all other systems, from how students are pushed out of schools when they don't perform as expected, to how people with disabilities are excluded from our communities and the ways in which workers are treated as expendable in our capitalist system. Changing everything might sound daunting, but it also means that there are many places to start, infinite opportunities to collaborate, and endless imaginative interventions and experiments to create. Let's begin our abolitionist journey, not with the question, what can we have now and how can we make it better? Instead, let's ask, what can we imagine for ourselves and the world. If we do that, then boundless possibilities of a more just world await us. Well, that's a stirring call to action, Rob. I'm wondering kind of what rings most powerfully true for you in those pages. I think, you know, she says, changing everything might sound daunting, but it also means there are many places to start, right. infinite opportunities to collaborate, and endless imaginative interventions and experiments to create. You know, that's really... It's what I try and communicate in the work that I do. So when I find people who put it so much more poetically and eloquently and powerfully than I do, I just like, oh, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> the whole book is a yes, 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 yes book for me. You know, yeah. when I when I speak to climate scientists, so the other week the United Nations they published a report where they said any chance of the world staying below one and a half degrees temperature increase is now gone unless we can see a rapid transformation of society is the phrase they use a rapid transformation of society so all the headlines in all the magazines 1.5 is gone end of 1.5 1.5 now finished i haven't seen any headlines that went hey cool rapid transformation of society why don't we do that rapid transformation of society right, bit right. rather than the hey we're finished and that's the end of us bit wouldn't that yeah. like? Sh shouldn't we at least give that a go before we just go to the "it's too late" and we're basically about to boil ourselves in our own soup kind of thing? Yeah. So, so for me, it's that's what I try and do in the work that I do is to try and bring yeah. that alive for people. Like, what are we so terrified of? And the only the only reason we're going to do it is if we're able to talk about what that radical transformation of society would be like in a way that it's so irresistible and delicious and mm. magnificent that that of course we want to do that yeah. rather than it feeling like us we're that we're being dragged away from something irreplaceable and what i love about about her work is that she talks about something which is huge what if there were no prisons i mean like yeah. What? Really? <laughs> it would be just mayhem and chaos and, and that's completely unimaginable. And the way she says, actually, the biggest source of violence 
in America at the moment is our prison and our incarceration mm-hmm. system and our policing system. The biggest, the, the, you know, the, the, the worst sexual abuser of people, the, 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 the worst uh, uh, rapist in the country is our prison system. And of course, it's no, no one is saying, let's just shut all the prisons down and let everybody out. What she's saying is this, this stuff doesn't just happen by accident. The fact that the vast majority of people in prison are young black men mm-hmm. is not because somehow they're, they're, in, they're inherently more badly behaved than everybody else. It's because that's the way the system is designed and that's how it works. Yeah. And it's a private prison system and it's brutal and it's violent. And wouldn't the world be better without it? And how would yeah. we get there? And what are the implications then in terms of how education works and how housing mm-hmm. works and how how parenting works and where money goes and how society is redesigned and how we manage conflicts and how we design in uh, you know, uh, restorative justice and different kinds of approaches than just locking people up and destroying their lives. Yeah. And, and so for me, there is such a... So I'm always looking for people who are exploring this idea of, well, what does it mean to be an imagination activist in the world? Right. What does right. it mean to be someone whose work unlocks different possibilities and different ways of thinking about the future? And most of the inspiration that I get from that work comes from uh, women of color at the moment, yeah. Adrienne Marie yeah. Brown, Walida Imarisha, um, uh, Mariami Kaba, people who are writing, I, th- I think, from a, such an incredible place of compassion Mm. kindness and it doesn't have to be like this why why are we settling for this really what we it's like we're just going to allow the prison industrial complex to grow and grow and build and build and build and that's just the inevitable direction we're going in really yeah so so for me it's she she writes with such compassion and and kindness and rage Mm. and and she speaks so beautifully and so powerfully about injustice in a way that as a privileged white guy, I really have nowhere near that experience yeah. or understanding of. And, but she also, I feel like she, she, she sort of takes my hand and takes me into that world in a way that is not. I, yeah. She, I, 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 I feel I hear you. You're swept you know I mean? away by it. Yeah. yeah. I, 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 she's, she's extraordinary. And, and I think that whole movement and all of that movement of, 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 uh, that came through Black Lives Matter that so many white people became so defensive about and all mm-hmm. that white lives matter rubbish, you know, it's, it's actually for me, white lives matter, black, black lives matter was such a, such a com- compassionate movement. It was extraordinary. Yeah. So yeah, it's about okay. uh, I, I love everything that she does. <laughs> <laughs> I'm picking that up. It's subtle, but I'm picking it up. Um, <laughs> let me ask you the 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 first of the four challenges she laid out in the in the pages you read were, you know, this is, this is my paraphrasing, but to change the world, we must first transform ourselves. Yeah. How have you transformed as an activist and as a man? I guess I've I've learned a lot over time about how to present these things to people how how to you know what are the 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 
there are certain people who during my time with all of this who I, I've been it's a, it's a few I can kind of count them on one hand but people who I've been to talks by that just rewired my brain completely and mm-hmm. gave me a huge boost to to, to 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 refocus what I'm doing and so I I feel like part of my sort of duty is to try and pay that back and to offer that yeah, to the next forward, generation who are coming yeah. through and um and part of the interest for me in in Mariame's book is is you know the again as a privileged white person it's like you know I have a I have a duty to to be doing some of this work and to be reading what people's re- reading voices and hearing voices who mm-hmm. who who don't get so much exposure so so the podcast that i do from what if to what next there was a very very conscious decision when i started that to never do any episodes with two white male guests on right and so let me i'm going to interrupt you if i can rob mm, because i believe this thoroughly that you've part of the transformation is is learning to talk about this in a way that is compelling and inviting and engaging rather than Head for the hills. Yeah, head for the hills. And I'm 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 I want to kind of push a little deeper into how have you transformed more of the being of who you are rather than the doing? Mm. Like this may be an artificial separation, but for me, learning the communication is part of the doing. But what's different about how you're wired, how you're showing up in the world, how you're how your heart has changed. So when I was when I was twenty, no, when I was nineteen, and I was a bit of a bewildered, lost kind <laughs> of nineteen-year-old, uh, uh, didn't really quite know what I was doing. Unlike ended, every other nineteen-year-old, like exactly, it's, <laughs> it's part of the terrain. I ended up living in in Italy for three years in a Buddhist monastery in a Tibetan Buddhist center it was really it was like my life university it was an extraordinary mm. instructive time and i've always been very inspired since in the in the the buddhist idea of the of the bodhisattva of like somebody whose whose expression of their compassion practice is of being of service to other people you know it's just one of the things that distinguishes the tibetan tradition from other ones other ones which are you get enlightened the point of it is to get enlightened like the buddha in, in, in the in the tibetan tradition they say that's not good enough actually there's no point doing that until you've freed everybody else so it's that idea that you live your life of service to other people so so i that's i've always tried to bring that into the activism that i do so it's like i'm so for me, it's an expression of that. Yeah. And it's something that has always underpinned. So I have four sons. My eldest son is now 29. My youngest is 20. And um, we've always tried to, they've grown up in a world where living as sustainably as we can is is fundamental to how 
to their experience of growing up. So that's their normal. So we've always grown yeah. food. They've always cooked fresh food. Uh, we've never been on airplanes. We cycle. We uh, separate everything. Do you know, it's it's like it's it's it was like a deep commitment as a family that that's who we mm-hmm. are and that's what we do. So. If I'm answering your question, it's, I, I guess it's it's like it's. Uh, so my wife is very involved in Extinction Rebellion, so we both have sort of different ways of manifesting our concern about mm-hmm. this. So hers is more around trying to block the things that are making everything worse, and mine is about trying to kickstart and fire the things that are going to make things better. But it comes from a it comes from a from a deep concern mm. about things which has been central in our relationship since we first met Renee. Mm. how does grief inform your work i think it's it's a it's a pretty constant companion mm. you know i i i always have to be very realistic about the fact that we started the transition movement in 2006 with this very ambitious goal of of kind of relocalizing the world and 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 actually during that time since then 30 percent of all the carbon emissions ever produced by humanity have been produced in that period of time uh, so we're not like winning we're no. not winning like and none of it is winning extinction rebellion isn't winning just stop oil isn't winning the 350.org isn't winning the sierra club isn't winning greenpeace aren't winning it's like everybody's trying different things and there isn't one silver bullet. This it's like there's mm. all kinds of different things that are that, that are going on. And the more we can talk to each other across movements, the better. So I think grief is something where that that for me there's a kind of a natu- there's like a healthy cycle, which is that you have the moments of grief and you know at, at the moment the direction that we're on. Uh, there's a huge there's there's many many reasons for grief and when we see lots of things that are happening but I feel like there's a healthy cycle where we experience that and then we use that to motivate us to do things and then it's the doing things that then gives us the energy and the connection and then we go back it's like a, it's like a loop but sometimes I think when we just focus on collapse and extinction all the time Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. then then we can get stuck in the grief bit and we, and we don't move through that. And Peter Kalmus, who's an amazing climate scientist based in the US, he says, someone asked him what gives you hope, and he said, the fact that we've barely tried yet. <laughs> I love it. The fact that we've barely tried yet. Yeah. You know, I tell you, it's like, okay, give me 30 years, give me the resource, and we'll try all this stuff, and if at the end of that it hasn't worked then fair enough but you can't but we can't say it's too late there's no point in doing anything when all the stuff that we know we have to do we've barely done any of it you know so i yeah. think it's it's a mixture of grief and and frustration uh, and rage that actually this is caused by a relatively small number of people mm-hmm. who are holding us back from what could be the most extraordinary transformation in human history? I'm, I read this a great book at the moment by a guy called William McCaskill, which is uh, I can't remember what it's called. Book, it's, yeah, it's about the future. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and he's and he yeah. says in there, you know, rather than 
thinking that this that we are somehow coming to the end of humanity that this there's so much narrative is about extinction collapse this is the, these are the sort of the last days of, the end uh, days, of humankind yeah. he says actually think of this as being a troubled adolescence yeah before yeah. the most incredible prolific uh, uh future so uh so that's what i sort of try and get people thinking about really but yeah i, th- I think if if, if yeah. you do this work then grief is pretty is pretty ever present really Rob, how do you find the scale of the work to do? You know, the, the last call to action in the, in the section you read out was around, you know, change everything. And, the, and, and you're like, that, it, that does feel quite daunting. And um, it feels to me that sometimes when people have ambitions to be a force for change, their, their scale is either too big because because you know when you say change everything that's overwhelming you can't change everything um but often the reaction to that is to play too small which is like i'm trying to do my recycling and that's also mm. not that's a thing but it's not as significant a thing as it might be i'm wondering how you figure out how to calibrate the scale at which you want to play so you can decide where you want to turn your attention so one of the things that that I try to sh- to share with people is is stories of how of things that changed in a, in a quite a short period of time. Mm. You know, there's there's so many examples of you know Rosa. We talked about Rosa Parks earlier on. You know, from when she refused to give up her seat, within ten years the Civil Rights Act was passed. It took ten years from the first international sanctions on South Africa to a new constitution being passed in South Africa. It's, it's, uh, things, you know, the, I, like five years ago, I don't know very many people who drank plant-based milks, for example. Right. You know, the yeah. growth of plant-based milks, it must be close to 50% of milk sales now are, right. are plant-based milks. That's happened in a really short period of time. It when has. I was 18, all the vegans that I knew back then wore black and were angry and the food was dreadful and they all looked really unhealthy and it was a very mm-hmm. unappealing um, thing. Now they're all gorgeous and uh and the food looks my amazing. wife is a vegan so i'm going to tell her that well i think you should yeah and the food and the food's amazing and and it's just and, and it's really appealing and which is why that yeah. shift is happening so so fast yeah. you know and all around the world you know re- re- renewable energy now costs about nine times less than new oil and gas mm. infrastructure uh and it's and it's just exploding all, all over the world this this sort of new infra new forms of energy uh, there's so much that's happening in terms of reimagining the food system, mm. and so I I think yes, can we re- can we change everything? Well, the fact that things have moved at a certain pace so far, you know, we saw during COVID that we could reimagine everything in a really short period of time because we saw that it was an emergency. We changed the economic model. We pay people not to work. We introduced all kinds of different things. Uh, in a very short period of time. Climate change is a way, way, way bigger emergency than COVID ever was. Mm-hmm. And if we were if we were to actually embrace it as such and respond as such, then mm. we could 
uh, we could change everything. I mean, maybe not absolutely everything, but we could change enough to start yeah. changing that direction in which in which we're going. Yeah. Uh, but so uh, Walida Imarisha, who's a who's a, an activist in the United States, who who co co edited a book called Octavia's Brood, all about Octavia Butler's work and legacy, and uh, a kind of a new generation of black storytellers using kind of speculative fiction as a way of exploring issues around race and gender and stuff. She wrote in her introduction to that book, all organizing is science fiction. I love Mm -hmm. it. All organizing Mm -hmm. is science fiction because it's about sharing a different story. And there's an organization called the Center for Artistic Activism in the United States who, who use this term, imagine winning imagine winning and that's kind of what i get partly again coming back to this book is is she 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 talks about imagine winning in a way that not that many people do what would it be like if if the prison abolition movement was actually successful what would the world would the world how would the world smell differently how would Mm -hmm. it taste differently what would it how would it feel differently and one of the things that that i've started using in, in in my work is that in the climate movement, there's so much focus on collapse and extinction and inevitability. And, and you know, there's a very famous graphic, which is called the climate stripes, which is, which anybody who's seen the front cover of Greta Thunberg's book, new book would know. It's like a, there's a, a vertical band for showing the average temperature of every year and it shows the warming that's going on. And, and then everybody's mindset that basically that trend continues and it's just going to get redder and redder and more and more awful. And so I've created a version of that where actually then where it goes the other way and it starts right. to cool and get and get bluer you know and in that spirit of imagine winning that's what feels should be our should be our yeah. pennant should be our flag should be our symbol it's it's like we have to be a movement that cultivates longing for mm. for, for a different world and that's if we're going if we are going to change everything we have to start by cultivating longing for that. And that comes back to storytelling and art and music and, uh, yeah, yeah. And books like this. Rob, it's been such a rich conversation. Thank you. Um, a final question. What needs to be said that hasn't yet been said between you and me? Uh, I think that I would like to to thank you for the spaciousness of this conversation i feel like you know sometimes i come to do things like this and there's a very prescriptive set of questions and we just sort of bash our way through them and i I love the way (laughs) that you've allowed this to be an emergent kind of generative conversation uh i think i would say uh, uh, that it's also you'd being asked to find two pages from one book (laughs) for me as you can see behind me i don't know if people who are listening will be able to see but my house is full of books and Mm -hmm. so being asked to just choose two pages is a bit like being asked you know who my favorite child is (laughs) you know it's like it's not quite that straightforward we know we know it's your second son i picked that up in the the subject (laughs) and it's uh uh yeah because and i and i love books and i think it's an incredible Mm. medium um I think maybe just the last thing is 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 that I would I would say to you know you you mentioned at the beginning about how you you've you were involved in activism when you were younger and not so much mm-hmm. now. I think I, what I would really say to everybody who's listening is 
Extinction Rebellion have this saying where they say, we are all crew. You know, we are all crew. We need you in this. We need everybody in there. And everybody has something to bring to this. And and um, the 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 kind of activism that each person listen, the kind of activist that each person listening to this can be is, is entirely something that they shape themselves and is a reflection of what they're passionate about and what they care about mm. and what they grieve for and what, what delights them. And, and of course we all have to make, we all have to live and survive and manage in this world. And, and, and I, you know, I've been in a, in a very lucky position that I've been able to, to get to a stage where, my activism is my work and and and, and, mm. I, and I love doing what I do and and I'm able to make a living doing it but that activism if it can be an hour a week it can be an hour every two weeks it can be whatever it can be a, a little bit of your weekend or something but this is a crucial crucial window a crucial juncture in history when we do have to change everything and to be able to change everything means that we need everybody on board and even if at the beginning you don't think it's possible just just give it a go get in just find find a place in it and do something chip in and and see where it takes you and you know when i was a permaculture teacher which i was for a long time and i taught people how to grow their own food how to build buildings how to generate energy practical sustainability stuff nobody ever came to me afterwards and said you know my life was doing really well until you taught me how to grow lettuce and then the wheels <laughs> fell off and everything went to shit you know it's it's like there is at the very least you will get to meet new people you didn't know before. And in a time which sociologists call an epidemic of loneliness, that's really important. But there'll be a much, much more that, that will come from that. So books like Mariame's book, I think we really need because every time we open the newspapers, every time on the, we turn, every time we turn on the television, every time we open our social media channels, we just get an endless stream of stuff telling us why we shouldn't believe that change is possible and why mm -hmm. capitalism is, is completely irreplaceable and nothing could ever, could ever happen apart from this. And we need books like this that, that pull that apart and say, no, 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 actually we can do anything. We can be extraordinary. We can, we can be bold and, I would much rather live through a time where we believed we could reimagine everything and we gave it a really good go than that we just sat there and watched everything just go down the tubes and then afterwards regretted that we hadn't acted when we could have done. If we're all crew, and I love that as an invitation to remember that we're all on the same craft together, well, what's your thing to do? I mean, clearly, being an activist doesn't have to mean chaining yourself to trees or disrupting tennis games, although these are powerful acts of protest. But being an activist does ask something of you. And if you're crew, and if you're active, not passive, what's your next thing to do? Maybe... It's just to listen to some more podcast episodes. That's okay. I hope there might be more, but that's okay. Um, I've got two to suggest for you. Uh, number 161, Stuart Semple. That's called Art's Real Superpower. He's an activist in his own way. And number 63, 
from Denora Getachu, which is Rebooting Democracy. See why I'm suggesting those two. If you want more of Rob, and at the very minimum, go check out his uh, great website with his The Good Guys Win in the Future. Uh, RobHopkins.net is his website. His books and podcasts are linked on the website, along with some of the films he's made about who he is and what he does. If you want him on Twitter, or X as it's now stupidly called, um, it's Robin Transition, or Rob in Transition is how it should be. So, um, And on Instagram, it's at RobHopkins5085. Thank you for listening. Thanks for loving the show. Thanks for passing the episodes on, for giving it a review if you've done that. Um, I'm grateful for that. You're awesome and you're doing great.